The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, great show today. We're going to be talking about an old favorite of mine, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and his classic 1931 short story, Babylon Revisited. <clears throat> Excuse me, still fighting off the cold. And we're joined by our old friend, Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So we're doing things a little different today, Mike. I have you here as part of the introduction. Does it feel any different? Uh, sort of, I guess. <laughs> You're moving up. <laughs> so, Mike, how did you spend your Halloween? You know, it's been years since I've been to a party. Yeah. Um, Costume party. Yeah, I, I guess I was uh, kind of asking colleagues, younger colleagues, what they were doing and trying to coax uh, one of my colleagues to change her LinkedIn profile photo to uh, her Halloween costume photo uh. from a few years ago. She... She took a comforter and turned herself into a snail. Oh. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah, that sounds clever. Yeah, so. <laughs> but you didn't uh, attend a costume party? No, I didn't. I, I did pick my daughter up from a Halloween party and I ended up talking to some fellow parents about um, uh, whether this was maybe the last year for costume parties for these kids. I think there's, you, you do costume parties when you're a kid and then there's that kind of high school lull, maybe college lull too, and then you come back to high school to costume parties. Yeah. I think in your 20s. Did you ever do a Halloween, a, I'm going to say a traditional Halloween, but I mean like in a in a small town where you go door to door and do trick-or-treating. Did you ever do that when you were a kid or were you always in the city just knocking on the doors of some neighbors and that kind of thing? Well, I, I, I trick-or-treated in Manhattan, and the way we did it, I was just telling my daughters, we went um, from door to door and store to store, and people used to give us one piece of candy. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty common, right? That's what happens no, at a house. Oh, well, now, now, now they, they just grab bag. in. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can reach in and grab as much as you want. Yeah. Yeah, I took, I, I took my I, kid around. And yeah. at one point he came back and he said, hey, dad, the key is the bowls. When people have bowls out, you can take a lot. <laughs> and then I watched him at the next house and there was a bowl uh -huh. out and he was kneeling down and scooping stuff out. And I heard the woman who owned the house say, dude. <laughs> and then he said, oh, sorry, sorry. He had to put a bunch of it back. <laughs> my my friend who lives in New Jersey said that she put a, she, she was greeting trick-or-treaters and then eventually she kind of got tired and so she left the bowl out on the porch and somebody came and just took the bowl and the rest of the candy <laughs> <laughs> and she was like yep. i mean come on really yeah. you had to take my wooden bowl oh, I, oh took the bowl too took the bowl too and i said <laughs> i said what do you think you, they, they could carry they, they needed something to carry all the candy with yeah carry right. it and you can't carry all the candy in you know so yeah. And then I came home. So my older son and my wife stayed home because they didn't uh, 
want to go around trick or treating. And then they they gave out candy for a while, and then they got to the point where they didn't want to keep the light on just for the teenagers and the older kids who were still out. So they turned right. off all the lights. So I came home. The house was completely dark, and they were in the basement watching The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> so I finished watching that. So now that it's November, I'm wondering, do you at the club, do you go ahead and put up the Christmas decorations or do you guys wait until Thanksgiving? The day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, that makes sense. That Friday. And then then yeah. it gets really festive. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the, I think the key is lights along the ceiling. Mm. I highly recommend that. <laughs> Along the molding, right by, right by the ceiling. Yep, that is. Uh, you'll have to send me a picture. So <laughs> this is going to be another self-contained episode of the history of literature. Meaning, we're going to introduce the short story, and then listen to it, and then you and I will come back for a discussion. But first, I wanted to talk a little about F. Scott Fitzgerald. So you and I have been reading him for the last twenty-some years, almost thirty, I think. What did you like about him? back when you were a teenager, and has that changed at all? I felt like I was drawn first to his persona, that he had mm. that he had kind of everything going for him, other yep. than, I mean, he, he was a scrawny, scrawny guy. He wasn't like, you know, a beefcake or anything, but he, you know, he had the intelligence and the wit and money, and, you know, I, I think I associated him with a kind of um, acceptable elitism. Mm. And he was so glamorous, and he had this kind of, he, he was such a bon vivant, and, and yet he was still cranking out what we what came to be considered classic American literature. Yeah, and I mean, and when you, you, you dive into his writing, it, it's very poetic, it's kind of fancy. Mm-hmm. It has like a real style to it that... Yeah. Maybe when you read, when, when I started reading some other writers, I mean, I could sort of tell them apart, but I couldn't really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. And would you, are you talking about metaphor and that kind of thing or the voice? Yeah. Like, he, like in Babylon, he'll, he'll refer to like, you know, trumpets of the second empire and yeah, you know, <laughs> lines like that where you almost don't think he's going to pull it off and, I think he was probably the first writer um, that I read that that had that kind of over, almost over the top style. And then I read Martin Amis, and hmm. it, it, it seemed like you know there it was very hard to be very stylistic. I yeah, think. yeah. There's a couple of times. There's always a few times where I think, oh, he's trying a little bit too hard here. But in general, it's I'd say he's, he has a pretty high success rate. Where it's there more times than not. I uh, read the sentence and I think, oh, that's a really beautiful line. And then I look at it again and I think, that's a really good line. Not just yeah. not just a, a fancy word or a flashy phrase, but it's really penetrating and really observant, just really sharp. He just seemed to uh, he seemed to be just a brilliant observer of of things and weather and stuff like that, but also just human behavior and gestures and. Yeah, I think he is much more than just someone who writes, you know, about the wealthy and um, drinking. I think that that may be the hook that gets young readers or 
you know, up and coming writers interested in him. And then when you start reading his works, um, there's a real uh, melancholy and tragedy to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And that leads us right into this story, Babylon Revisited. Now, you told me that you read this, you read this every other year. Is that something you can talk to us about now, or should we wait until after we hear the story? Um, yeah, maybe we should talk about it afterward. Okay. I don't so want to ruin it. Let me give a little bit of history to the story and Fitzgerald. Uh, so Fitzgerald was born in 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota. He went to Princeton in 1913. He joined the Army in 1917, which is also where he met Zelda, the love of his life, whom he married in 1920. He had just had his first novel accepted for publication when they were married. For the next 10 years or so, the two of them were key figures in what was called the Lost Generation, a group of writers and artists and other American bon vivants who traipsed through Europe in between the world wars. Scott was famous for writing about debutantes and wealth, although he was much more famous as a magazine writer than a novelist. We sort of forget that now because The Great Gatsby is was so famous. That's so much of his fame is connected with that. But in his lifetime, he made much more money and was far more famous for the short stories that he published in magazines like Collier's and Esquire, and above all, the Saturday Evening Post, which, for example, paid him $4,000 per story at his peak. He published 65 stories in the Saturday Evening Post. The circulation was 2.75 million uh, issue, uh, per issue. So millions of people, many millions of readers, knew him as a short story writer. That was the source of of his fame during his lifetime. In his novels, The Great Gatsby sold fewer than 20,000 copies in his lifetime, even though now it sells something like 300,000 copies a year. But uh, there was one year where The Great Gatsby, his, his royalties for The Great Gatsby was $5.12 or something. <laughs> and then he's making, you know, $4,000 a crack writing for the Saturday Evening Post. So even though I think he always wanted, he respected his novels, and he viewed that as as more serious and meaningful work, there's no question that in his lifetime, the short stories were what uh, brought him his fame and fortune. So that brings us to this story, Babylon Revisited. By the time it was written, the stock market crash of 1929 had ended what was called the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age, which Fitzgerald had embodied. Now we are in the aftermath of the party. It's 1931, and Americans are opening their Saturday evening post. They see a story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and they think, ah, yes, the young wonderkind who wrote about flapper girls and jumping into the fountains of the plaza and diamonds as big as the Ritz. That was fun then, but it looks a little less fun now that we know that it led to this depression. It was a bubble, and the bubble has burst. What does this guy have to say about the world today? And they get this beautiful and haunting story, Babylon Revisited. Mike, anything else to say about this one before we listen to it? Uh, just, it, it's it's sort of interesting to try to guess the ending Mm, yeah. as it goes and then um a little uh, bonus question try try to guess what work of his the ending reminds me of listeners who know me well <laughs> okay i wanted to add a few biographical notes that will i think pertain to for listeners when they are listening to the story 
Zelda, his wife, had suffered a breakdown in 1930, which was diagnosed as schizophrenia. This was devastating for Scott. He had financial difficulties, including now the payments he had to make for her hospitalization. And the two of them also had a daughter, Scotty, who was nine years old at the time. And Zelda's sister, Rosalind, and her husband, Newman Smith, were trying to adopt Scotty. They had always viewed Scott as a drunkard and wastrel and thought he was an unfit parent. They were much more responsible and had never really signed on to the high living of the 20s. So knowing that, you'll hear, as you hear the story, you'll hear that there are some biographical elements in the story, and we'll see how Fitzgerald spins that biographical flax into fictional gold, although maybe the gold is a little less shiny than it had been just a few years before. Let's take a quick break. We'll listen to Babylon Revisited, then come back for our discussion. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Babylon Revisited by F. Scott Fitzgerald 1. And where's Mr. Campbell? Charlie asked. Gone to Switzerland. Mr. Campbell's a pretty sick man, Mr. Wales. I'm sorry to hear that. And George Hart? Charlie inquired. Back in America, gone to work. And where is the snowbird? He was in here last week. Anyway, his friend Mr. Schaefer is in Paris. Two familiar names from the long list of a year and a half ago. Charlie scribbled an address in his notebook and tore out the page. If you see Mr. Schaefer, give him this, he said. It's my brother-in-law's address. I haven't settled on a hotel yet. He was not really disappointed to find Paris was so empty, but the stillness in the Ritz bar was strange and portentous. It was not an American bar anymore. He felt polite in it, and not as if he owned it. It had gone back into France. He felt the stillness from the moment he got out of the taxi and saw the doorman, usually in a frenzy of activity at this hour, gossiping with a chauffeur by the servant's entrance. Passing through the corridor, he heard only a single bored voice in the once clamorous women's room. 
When he turned into the bar, he traveled the twenty feet of green carpet with his eyes fixed straight ahead by old habit, and then, with his foot firmly on the rail, he turned and surveyed the room, encountering only a single pair of eyes that fluttered up from a newspaper in the corner. Charlie asked for the head barman, Paul, who in the latter days of the bull market had come to work in his own custom-built car, disembarking, however, with due nicety at the nearest corner. But Paul was at his country house today, and Alex giving him information. No, no more, Charlie said. I'm going slow these days. Alex congratulated him. You were going pretty strong a couple of years ago. I'll stick to it, all right, Charlie assured him. I've stuck to it for over a year and a half now. How do you find conditions in America? I haven't been to America for months. I'm in business in Prague, representing a couple of concerns there. They don't know about me down there. Alex smiled. Remember the night of George Hart's bachelor dinner here, said Charlie. By the way, what's become of Claude Fessenden? Alex lowered his voice confidentially. He's in Paris, but he doesn't come here anymore. Paul doesn't allow it. He ran up a bill of 30,000 francs, charging all his drinks and his lunches and usually his dinner for more than a year. And when Paul finally told him he had to pay, he gave him a bad check. Alex shook his head sadly. I don't understand. It's such a dandy fellow. Now he's all bloated up. He made a plump apple of his hands. Charlie watched a group of strident queens installing themselves in a corner. Nothing affects them, he thought. Stocks rise and fall, people loaf for work, but they go on forever. The place oppressed him. He called for the dice and shook with Alex for the drink. Here for long, Mr. Wales? I'm here for four or five days to see my little girl. Oh, you have a little girl? Outside, the fire-red, gas-blue, ghost-green signs shone smokily through the tranquil rain. It was late afternoon, and the streets were in movement. The bistros gleamed. At the corner of the Boulevard de Capuchin, he took a taxi. The Place de la Concorde moved by in pink majesty. They crossed the logical Seine, and Charlie felt the sudden provincial quality of the left bank. Charlie directed his taxi to the Avenue de l'Opera, which was out of his way. But he wanted to see the blue hour spread over the magnificent facade and imagine that the cab horns, playing endlessly the first few bars of Le Plus Calon, were the trumpets of the Second Empire. They were closing the iron grill in front of Brentano's bookstore, and people were already at dinner behind the trim little bourgeois hedge of Duval's. He had never eaten at a really cheap restaurant in Paris. Five-course dinner, four francs fifty, eighteen cents, wine included. For some odd reason, he wished that he had. As they rolled on to the left bank and he felt its sudden provincialism, he thought, I spoiled this city for myself. I didn't realize it, but the days came along one after another, and then two years were gone, and everything was gone, and I was gone. He was thirty-five and good to look at. The Irish mobility of his face was sobered by a deep wrinkle between his eyes. As he rang his brother-in-law's bell in the Rue Palantin, the wrinkle deepened till it pulled down his brows. He felt a cramping sensation in his belly. 
From behind, the maid who opened the door darted a little, lovely little girl of nine, who shrieked, Daddy, and flew up, struggling like a fish, into his arms. She pulled his head around by one ear and set her cheek against his. My old pie, he said. Oh, daddy, 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 dads, dads, dads. She drew him into the salon, where the family waited, a boy and girl his daughter's age, his sister-in-law and her husband. He greeted Marion with his voice pitched carefully to avoid either feigned enthusiasm or dislike, but her response was more frankly tepid though she minimized her expression of unalterable distrust by directing her regard toward his child. The two men clasped hands in a friendly way, and Lincoln Peters rested his for a moment on Charlie's shoulder. The room was warm and comfortably American. The three children moved intimately about, playing through the yellow oblongs that led to other rooms— the cheer of six o'clock spoke in the eager smacks of the fire and the sounds of French activity in the kitchen. But Charlie did not relax. His heart sat up rigidly in his body, and he drew confidence from his daughter, who from time to time came close to him, holding in her arms the doll he had brought. Really extremely well, he declared in answer to Lincoln's question. There's a lot of business there that isn't moving at all, but we're doing even better than ever. In fact, Damn well. I'm bringing my sister over from America next month to keep house for me. My income last year was bigger than it was when I had money. You see the checks? His boasting was for a specific purpose, but after a moment, seeing a faint restiveness in Lincoln's eye, he changed the subject. Those are fine children of yours, well brought up, good manners. We think Honoria is a great little girl, too. Marion Peters came back from the kitchen. She was a tall woman with worried eyes, who had once possessed a fresh American loveliness. Charlie had never been sensitive to it, and was always surprised when people spoke of how pretty she had been. From the first, there had been an instinctive antipathy between them. "'Well, how do you find Honoria?' she asked." "'Wonderful! I was astonished how much she's grown in ten months. All the children are looking well.' We haven't had a doctor for a year. How do you like being back in Paris? It seems very funny to see so few Americans around. I'm delighted, Marion said vehemently. Now at least you can go into a store without their assuming you're a millionaire. We've suffered like everybody, but on the whole, it's a good deal pleasanter. But it was nice while it lasted, Charlie said. We were a sort of Royalty, almost infallible, with a sort of magic around us. In the bar this afternoon, he stumbled, seeing his mistake. There wasn't a man I knew. She looked at him keenly. I should think you'd have had enough of bars. I only stayed a minute. I take one drink every afternoon, and no more. Don't you want a cocktail before dinner? Lincoln asked. I take only one drink every afternoon, and I've had that. I hope you keep to it, said Marion. Her dislike was evident in the coldness with which she spoke, but Charlie only smiled. He had larger plans. Her very aggressiveness gave him an advantage, and he knew enough to wait. He wanted them to initiate the discussion of what they knew had brought him to Paris. At dinner, 
He couldn't decide whether Honoria was most like him or her mother, fortunate if she didn't combine the traits of both that had brought them to disaster. A great wave of protectiveness went over him. He thought he knew what to do for her. He believed in character. He wanted to jump back a whole generation and trust in character again as the eternally valuable element. Everything wore out. He left soon after dinner, but not to go home. He was curious to see Paris by night with clearer and more judicious eyes than those of other days. He bought a strapontin for the casino and watched Josephine Baker go through her chocolate arabesques. After an hour, he left and strolled toward Montmartre, up the Rue Pigalle into the Place Blanche. The rain had stopped, and there were a few people in evening clothes disembarking from taxis in front of cabarets, and cocotte prowling singly or in pairs, and many Negroes. He passed a lighted door from which issued music, and stopped with the sense of familiarity. It was Bricktops, where he had parted with so many hours and so much money. A few doors farther on, he found another ancient rendezvous and incautiously put his head inside. Immediately, an eager orchestra burst into sound, a pair of professional dancers leaped to their feet, and a maitre d'hôtel swooped toward him, crying, Crowd just arriving, sir! But he withdrew quickly. You'd have to be damn drunk, he thought. Zelly's was closed, the bleak and sinister cheap hotels surrounding it were dark. Up in the Rue Blanche there was more light and a local, colloquial French crowd. The poet's cave had disappeared, but the two great mouths of the Café of Heaven and the Café of Hell still yawned, even devoured, as he watched, the meager contents of a tourist bus. A German, a Japanese, and an American couple who glanced at him with frightened eyes. So much for the effort and ingenuity of Montmartre. All the catering to vice and waste was on an utterly childish scale, and he suddenly realized the meaning of the word dissipate. To dissipate into thin air, to make nothing out of something. In the little hours of the night, every move from place to place was an enormous human jump, an increase of paying for the privilege of slower and slower motion. He remembered thousand-franc notes being given to an orchestra for playing a single number, hundred-franc notes tossed to a doorman for calling a cab. But it hadn't been given for nothing. It had been given, even the most wildly squandered sum, as an offering to destiny, that he might not remember the things most worth remembering, the things that now he would always remember. His child taken from his control, his wife escaped to a grave in Vermont. In the glare of a brasserie, a woman spoke to him. He brought her some eggs and coffee, and then, eluding her encouraging stare, gave her a twenty-franc note and took a taxi to his hotel. 2. He woke upon a fine fall day, football weather. The depression of yesterday was gone, and he liked the people on the streets. At noon, he sat opposite Honoria at La Grande Vatel, the only restaurant he could think of not reminiscent of champagne dinners and long luncheons that began at two and ended in a blurred and vague twilight. Now, how about vegetables? Oughtn't you to have some vegetables? Well, yes. Here's epinards and chaufleur and carrots and arico. 
I'd like chaufleur. Wouldn't you like to have two vegetables? I usually only have one at lunch. The waiter was pretending to be inordinately fond of children. Quel est mignon la petite? Elle parle exactement comme française. How about dessert? Shall we wait and see? The waiter disappeared. Honoria looked at her father expectantly. What are we going to do? First, we're going to that toy store in the Rue Saint-Honoré and buy you anything you like. And then we're going to the vaudeville at the Empire. She hesitated. I like it about the vaudeville, but not the toy store. Why not? Well, you brought me this doll. She had it with her. And I've got lots of things, and we're not rich anymore, are we? We never were, but today you are to have anything you want. All right, she agreed resignedly. When there had been her mother and a French nurse, he had been inclined to be strict. Now he extended himself, reached out for a new tolerance. He must be both parents to her and not shut any of her out of communication. I want to get to know you, he said gravely. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles J. Wales of Prague. Oh, Daddy! Her voice cracked with laughter. And who are you, please? He persisted, and she accepted a role immediately. Honoria Wales, Rue Palatin, Paris. Married or single? No, not married. Single. He indicated the doll. But I see you have a child, madame. Unwilling to disinherit it, she took it to her heart and thought quickly. Yes, I've been married, but I'm not married now. My husband is dead. He went on quickly. And the child's name? Simone. That's after my best friend at school. I'm very pleased that you're doing so well at school. I'm third this month, she boasted. Elsie, that was her cousin, is only about 18th, and Richard is about at the bottom. You like Richard and Elsie, don't you? Oh, yes, I like Richard quite well, and I like her all right. Cautiously and casually, he asked. And Aunt Marion and Uncle Lincoln, which do you like best? Oh, Uncle Lincoln, I guess. He was increasingly aware of her presence. As they came in, a murmur of adorable followed them, and now the people at the next table bent all their silences upon her, staring as if she were something no more conscious than a flower. Why don't I live with you? she asked suddenly. Because Mama's dead? You must stay here and learn more French. It would have been hard for Daddy to take care of you so well. I don't really need much taken care of anymore. I do everything for myself. Going out of the restaurant, a man and a woman unexpectedly hailed him. Well, the old whales. Hello there, Lorraine. Dunk. Sudden ghosts out of the past. Duncan Schaefer, a friend from college. Lorraine Quarles, a lovely pale blonde of thirty one of a crowd who had helped them make months into days in the lavish times of three years ago. My husband couldn't come this year, she said in answer to his question. We're poor as hell. So he gave me 200 a month and told me I could do my worst on that. This year, little girl, 
What about coming back and sitting down? Duncan asked. Can't do it. He was glad for an excuse. As always, he felt Lorraine's passionate, provocative attraction, but his own rhythm was different now. Well, how about dinner? she asked. I'm not free. Give me your address and let me call you. Charlie, I believe you're sober, she said judiciously. I honestly believe he's sober, Dunk. Pinch him and see if he's sober. Charlie indicated Honoria with his head. They both laughed. What's your address? said Duncan skeptically. He hesitated, unwilling to give the name of his hotel. I'm not settled yet. I'd better call you. We're going to see the vaudeville at the Empire. There, that's what I want to do, Lorraine said. I want to see some clowns and acrobats and jugglers. That's just what we'll do, Dunk. We've got to do an errand first, said Charlie. Perhaps we'll see you there. All right, you snob. Goodbye, beautiful little girl. Goodbye, Honoria bobbed politely. Somehow, an unwelcome encounter. They liked him because he was functioning, because he was serious. They wanted to see him because he was stronger than they were now, because they wanted to draw a certain sustenance from his strength. At the Empire, Honoria proudly refused to sit upon her father's folded coat. She was already an individual with a code of her own, and Charlie was more and more absorbed by the desire of putting a little of himself into her before she crystallized utterly. It was hopeless to try to know her in so short a time. Between the acts, they came upon Duncan and Lorraine in the lobby where the band was playing. Have a drink? All right, but not up at the bar. We'll take a table. The perfect father. Listening abstractedly to Lorraine, Charlie watched Honoria's eyes leave their table, and he followed them wistfully about the room, wondering what they saw. He met her glance, and she smiled. I liked that lemonade, she said. What had she said? What had he expected? Going home in a taxi afterward, he pulled her over until her head rested against his chest. Darling, do you ever think about your mother? Yes, sometimes, she answered vaguely. I don't want you to forget her. Have you got a picture of her? Yes, I think so. Anyhow, Aunt Marion has. Why don't you want me to forget her? She loved you very much. I loved her, too. They were silent for a moment. Daddy, I want to come and live with you, she said suddenly. His heart leaped. He had wanted it to come like this. Aren't you perfectly happy? Yes, but I love you better than anybody, and you love me better than anybody, don't you, now that Mommy's dead? Of course I do. But you won't always like me best, honey. You'll grow up and meet somebody your own age and go marry him and forget you ever had a daddy. Yes, that's true, she agreed tranquilly. He didn't go in. He was coming back at nine o'clock, and he wanted to keep himself fresh and new for the thing he must say then. When you're safe inside, just show yourself in that window. All right. Goodbye, dads, 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 dads. He waited in the dark street until she appeared, all warm and glowing, in the window above, and kissed her fingers out into the night. 3. 
They were waiting. Marion sat behind the coffee service in a dignified black dinner dress that just faintly suggested mourning. Lincoln was walking up and down with the animation of one who had already been talking. They were as anxious as he was to get into the question. He opened it almost immediately. I suppose you know what I want to see you about, why I really came to Paris. Marion played with the black stars on her necklace and frowned. I'm awfully anxious to have a home, he continued, and I'm awfully anxious to have Honoria in it. I appreciate your taking in Honoria for her mother's sake, but things have changed now. He hesitated and then continued more forcibly. Changed radically with me, and I want to ask you to reconsider the matter. It would be silly for me to deny that about three years ago I was acting badly. Marion looked up at him with hard eyes. But all that's over. As I told you, I haven't had more than a drink a day for over a year, and I take that drink deliberately, so that the idea of alcohol won't get too big in my imagination. You see the idea? No, said Marion succinctly. It's a sort of stunt I set myself. It keeps the matter in proportion. I get you, said Lincoln. You don't want to admit it's got any attraction for you. Something like that. Sometimes I forget and don't take it, but I try to take it. Anyhow, I couldn't afford to drink in my position. The people I represent are more than satisfied with what I've done, and I'm bringing my sister over from Burlington to keep house for me, and I want awfully to have Honoria, too. You know that even when her mother and I weren't getting along well, we never let anything that happened touch Honoria. I know she's fond of me, and I know I'm able to take care of her, and, well, there you are. How do you feel about it? He knew that now he would have to take a beating. It would last an hour or two hours, and it would be difficult. But if he modulated his inevitable resentment to the chastened attitude of the reformed sinner, he might win his point in the end. Keep your temper, he told himself. You don't want to be justified. You want Honoria. Lincoln spoke first. We've been talking it over ever since we got your letter last month. We're happy to have Honoria here. She's a dear little thing, and we're glad to be able to help her. But of course, that isn't the question. Marion interrupted suddenly. How long are you going to stay sober, Charlie? She asked. Permanently, I hope. How can anybody count on that? You know I never did drink heavily until I gave up business and came over here with nothing to do. Then Helen and I began to run around with, Please leave Helen out of it. I can't bear to hear you talk about her like that. He stared at her grimly. He had never been certain how fond of each other the sisters were in life. My drinking only lasted about a year and a half, from the time we came over until I collapsed. It was time enough. It was time enough, he agreed. My duty is entirely to Helen, she said. I try to think what she would have wanted me to do. Frankly, from the night you did that terrible thing, you haven't really existed for me. I can't help that. She was my sister. Yes. When she was dying, she asked me to look out for Honoria. If you hadn't been in a sanitarium then, it might have helped matters. He had no answer. I'll never in my life be able to forget the morning when Helen knocked at my door, soaked to the skin and shivering, and said you'd locked her out. 
Charlie gripped the sides of the chair. This was more difficult than he expected. He wanted to launch out into a long expostulation and explanation, but he only said, The night I locked her out, and she interrupted, I don't feel up to going over that again. After a moment's silence, Lincoln said, We're we're getting off the subject. You want Marion to set aside her legal guardianship and give you Honoria. I think the main point for her is whether she has confidence in you or not. I don't blame Marion, Charlie said slowly, but I think she can have entire confidence in me. I had a good record up to three years ago. Of course, it's within human possibilities I might go wrong any time, but if we wait much longer, I'll lose Honoria's childhood and my chance for a home. He shook his head. I'll simply lose her, don't you see? Yes, I see, said Lincoln. Why didn't you think of all this before? Marion asked. I suppose I did from time to time, but Helen and I were getting along badly. When I consented to the guardianship, I was flat on my back in a sanitarium, and the market had cleaned me out. I knew I'd acted badly, and I thought if it would bring any peace to Helen, I'd agree to anything. But now it's different. I'm functioning. I'm behaving damn well so far as— Please don't swear at me, Marion said. He looked at her. Startled, with each remark the force of her dislike became more and more apparent. She had built up all her fear of life into one wall and faced it toward him. This trivial reproof was possibly the result of some trouble with the cook several hours before. Charlie became increasingly alarmed at leaving Honoria in this atmosphere of hostility against himself. Sooner or later it would come out, in a word here, a shake of the head there— and some of that distrust would be irrevocably implanted in Honoria. But he pulled his temper down out of his face and shut it up inside him. He had won a point, for Lincoln realized the absurdity of Marion's remark and asked her lightly since when she had objected to the word damn. Another thing, Charlie said, I'm able to give her certain advantages now. I'm going to take a French governess to Prague with me. I've got a lease on a new apartment— He stopped, realizing that he was blundering. They couldn't be expected to accept with equanimity the fact that his income was again twice as large as their own. I suppose you can give her more luxuries than we can, said Marion. When you were throwing away money, we were living along, watching every ten francs. I suppose you'll start doing it again. Oh, no he said. I've learned. I worked hard for ten years, you know, until I got lucky in the market, like so many people. Terribly lucky. It didn't seem any use working anymore, so I quit. It won't happen again. There was a long silence. All of them felt their nerves straining, and for the first time in a year, Charlie wanted to drink. He was sure now that Lincoln Peters wanted him to have his child. Marion shuddered suddenly. Part of her saw that Charlie's feet were planted on the earth now, and her own maternal feeling recognized the naturalness of his desire. But she had lived for a long time with a prejudice, a prejudice founded on a curious disbelief in her sister's happiness, and which, in the shock of one terrible night, had turned to hatred for him. 
It had all happened at a point in her life where the discouragement of ill health and adverse circumstances made it necessary for her to believe in tangible villainy and a tangible villain. I can't help what I think, she cried out suddenly. How much you were responsible for Helen's death, I don't know. It's something you'll have to square with your own conscience. An electric current of agony surged through him. For a moment, he was almost on his feet, an unuttered sound echoing in his throat. He hung on to himself for a moment, another moment. Hold on there, said Lincoln uncomfortably. I never thought you were responsible for that. Helen died of heart trouble, Charlie said dully. Yes, heart trouble. Marion spoke as if the phrase had another meaning for her. Then, in the flatness that followed her outburst, she saw him plainly, and she knew he had somehow arrived at control over the situation. Glancing at her husband, she found no help from him, and as abruptly as if it were a matter of no importance, she threw up the sponge. Do what you like, she cried, springing up from her chair. She's your child. I'm not the person to stand in your way. I think if it were my child, I'd rather see her. She managed to check herself. You two decided. I can't stand this. I'm sick. I'm going to bed. She hurried from the room. After a moment, Lincoln said, This has been a hard day for her. You know how strongly she feels. His voice was almost apologetic. When a woman gets an idea in her head, of course. It's going to be all right. I think she sees now that you can provide for the child, and so we can't very well stand in your way or Honoria's way. Thank you, Lincoln. I'd better go along and see how she is. I'm going. He was still trembling when he reached the street, but a walk down the Rue Bonaparte to the Quays set him up and as he crossed the Seine, fresh and new by the K-lamps, he felt exultant. But back in his room he couldn't sleep. The image of Helen haunted him. Helen, whom he had loved so until they had senselessly begun to abuse each other's love, tear it into shreds. On that terrible February night that Marion remembered so vividly, a slow quarrel had gone on for hours. There was a scene at the Florida, and then he attempted to take her home, and then she kissed young Webb at a table. After that, there was what she had hysterically said. When he arrived home alone, he turned the key in the lock in wild anger. How could he know she would arrive an hour later, alone, that there would be a snowstorm, in which she wandered about in slippers, too confused to find a taxi? Then, the aftermath, her escaping pneumonia by a miracle, and all the attendant horror. They were reconciled, but that was the beginning of the end, and Marion, who had seen with her own eyes and who imagined it to be one of many scenes from her sister's martyrdom, never forgot. Going over it again brought Helen nearer, and in the white, soft light that steals upon half-sleep near morning, he found himself talking to her again. She said that he was perfectly right about Honoria, and that she wanted Honoria to be with him. She said she was glad he was being good and doing better. She said a lot of other things, very friendly things, but she was in a swing in a white dress, and swinging faster and faster all the time, so that at the end he could not hear clearly all that she said.
four. He woke up feeling happy. The door of the world was open again. He made plans, vistas, futures for Honoria and himself. But suddenly he grew sad, remembering all the plans he and Helen had made. She had not planned to die. The present was the thing, work to do and someone to love, but not to love too much, for he knew the injury that a father can do to a daughter or a mother to a son by attaching them too closely. Afterward, out in the world, the child would seek in the marriage partner the same blind tenderness and, failing probably to find it, turn against love and life. It was another bright, crisp day. He called Lincoln Peters at the bank where he worked and asked if he could count on taking Honoria when he left for Prague. Lincoln agreed that there was no reason for delay. One thing, the legal guardianship. Marion wanted to retain that a while longer. She was upset by the whole matter, and it would oil things if she felt that the situation was still in her control for another year. Charlie agreed, wanting only the tangible, visible child. Then, the question of a governess. Charlie sat in a gloomy agency and talked to a cross Bernays and to a buxom Breton peasant, neither of whom he could have endured. There were others whom he would see tomorrow. He lunched with Lincoln Peters at Griffin's, trying to keep down his exultation. There's nothing quite like your own child, Lincoln said, but you understand how Marion feels too. She's forgotten how hard I worked for seven years there, Charlie said. She just remembers one night. There's another thing, Lincoln hesitated. While you and Helen were tearing around Europe, throwing money away. We were just getting along. I didn't touch any of the prosperity because I never got ahead enough to carry anything but my insurance. I think Marion felt there was some kind of injustice in it, you not even working toward the end and getting richer and richer. It went just as quick as it came, said Charlie. Yes, a lot of it stayed in the hands of chasseurs and saxophone players and maitres d'hôtel. Well, the big party's over now. I just said that to explain Marion's feeling about those crazy years. If you drop in about six o'clock tonight, before Marion's too tired, we'll settle the details on the spot. Back at his hotel, Charlie found a pneumatique that had been redirected from the Ritz bar, where Charlie had left his address for the purpose of finding a certain man. Dear Charlie, you were so strange when we saw you the other day that I wondered if I did something to offend you. If so, I'm not conscious of it. In fact, I have thought about you too much for the last year, and it's always been in the back of my mind that I might see you if I came over here. We did have such good times that crazy spring, like the night you and I stole the butcher's tricycle, and the time we tried to call on the president, and you had the old derby rim and the wire cane. Everybody seems so old lately, but I don't feel old a bit. Couldn't we get together sometime today for old time's sake? I've got a vile hangover for the moment, but we'll be feeling better this afternoon and we'll look for you about five in the sweatshop at the Ritz. Always devotedly, Lorraine. His first feeling was one of awe that he had actually, in his mature years, stolen a tricycle and peddled the rain all over the etoile between the small hours and dawn. In retrospect, it was a nightmare. 
Locking out Helen didn't fit in with any other act of his life, but the tricycle incident did. It was one of many. How many weeks or months of dissipation to arrive at that condition of utter irresponsibility? He tried to picture how Lorraine had appeared to him then, very attractive. Helen was unhappy about it, though she said nothing. Yesterday, in the restaurant, Lorraine had seemed trite, blurred, worn away. He emphatically did not want to see her, and he was glad Alex had not given away his hotel address. It was a relief to think, instead of Honoria, to think of Sundays spent with her, and of saying good morning to her, and of knowing she was there in his house at night, drawing her breath in the darkness. At five, he took a taxi and bought presents for all the Peters, a cloth doll, a box of Roman soldiers, flowers for Marion, big linen handkerchiefs for Lincoln. He saw, when he arrived in the apartment, that Marion had accepted the inevitable. She greeted him now as though he were a recalcitrant member of the family, rather than a menacing outsider. Honoria had been told she was going. Charlie was glad to see that her tact made her conceal her excessive happiness. Only on his lap did she whisper her delight, and the question, when, before she slipped away with the other children. He and Marion were alone for a minute in the room, and on an impulse he spoke out boldly. Family quarrels are bitter things. They don't go according to any rules. They're not like aches or wounds. They're more like splits in the skin that won't heal because there's not enough material. I wish you and I could be on better terms. Some things are hard to forget, she answered. It's a question of confidence. There was no answer to this. And presently she asked, When do you propose to take her? As soon as I can get, get a governess. I hoped the day after tomorrow. That's impossible. I've got to get her things in shape, not before Saturday. He yielded. Coming back into the room, Lincoln offered him a drink. I'll take my daily whiskey, he said. It was warm here. It was a home, people together by a fire. The children felt very safe and important. The mother and father were serious, watchful. They had things to do for the children more important than his visit here. A spoonful of medicine was, after all, more important than the strained relations between Marion and himself. They were not dull people, but they were very much in the grip of life and circumstances. He wondered if he couldn't do something to get Lincoln out of his rut at the bank. A long peal at the doorbell. The Bonatoufer passed through and went down the corridor. The door opened upon another long ring, and then voices, and the three in the salon looked up expectantly. Lincoln moved to bring the corridor within his range of vision, and Marion rose. Then the maid came back along the corridor, closely followed by the voices, which developed under the light into Duncan Schaefer and Lorraine Quarles. They were gay, they were hilarious, they were roaring with laughter. For a moment, Charlie was astounded, unable to understand how they ferreted out the Peters' address. Ah! Duncan wagged his finger roguishly at Charlie. Ah! They both slid down another cascade of laughter. Anxious and at a loss, Charlie shook hands with them quickly and presented them to Lincoln and Marion. Marion nodded, 
Scarcely speaking, she had drawn back a step toward the fire. Her little girl stood beside her, and Marion put an arm about her shoulder. With growing annoyance at the intrusion, Charlie waited for them to explain themselves. After some concentration, Duncan said, We came to invite you out to dinner. Lorraine and I insist that all this she-she-cagey business about your address got to stop. Charlie came closer to them, as if to force them backward down the corridor. Sorry, but I can't. Tell me where you'll be, and I'll phone you in half an hour. This made no impression. Lorraine sat down suddenly on the side of a chair, and focusing her eyes on Richard, cried, Oh, what a nice little boy! Come here, little boy! Richard glanced at his mother, but did not move. With a perceptible shrug of her shoulders, Lorraine turned back to Charlie. Come and dine. Sure, your cousins won't mind. See you so seldom, or solemn. I can't, said Charlie sharply. You two have dinner, and I'll phone you. Her voice became suddenly unpleasant. All right, we'll go. But I remember once when you hammered on my door at 4 a.m. I was enough of a good sport to give you a drink. Come on, Dunk. Still in slow motion, with blurred, angry faces, with uncertain feet, they retired along the corridor. Good night, Charlie said. Good night, responded Lorraine emphatically. When he went back into the salon, Marion had not moved. Only now her son was standing in the circle of her other arm. Lincoln was still swinging Honoria back and forth like a pendulum, from side to side. What an outrage! Charlie broke out. What an absolute outrage! Neither of them answered. Charlie dropped into an armchair, picked up his drink, set it down again, and said, People I haven't seen for two years, having the colossal nerve. He broke off. Marion had made the sound. Oh! In one swift, furious breath, turned her body from him with a jerk and left the room. Lincoln set down Honoria carefully. You children go in and start your soup, he said, and when they obeyed, he said to Charlie, Marion's not well, and she can't stand shocks. That kind of people make her really physically sick. I didn't tell them to come here. They wormed your name out of somebody. They deliberately... Well, it's too bad. It doesn't help matters. Excuse me a minute. Left alone, Charlie sat tense in his chair. In the next room, he could hear the children eating, talking in monosyllables, already oblivious to the scene between their elders. He heard a murmur of conversation from a farther room, and then the ticking bell of a telephone receiver picked up, and in a panic he moved to the other side of the room and out of earshot. In a minute, Lincoln came back. Look here, Charlie. I think we'd better call off dinner for tonight. Marion's in bad shape. Is she angry with me? Sort of he said, almost roughly. She's not strong, and... You mean, she's changed her mind about Honoria? She's pretty bitter right now. I don't know. You phone me at the bank tomorrow. I wish you'd explain to her I never dreamed these people would come here. I'm just as sore as you are. 
I couldn't explain anything to her now. Charlie got up. He took his coat and hat and started down the corridor. Then he opened the door of the dining room and said in a strange voice, Good night, children. Honoria rose and ran around the table to hug him. Good night, sweetheart, he said vaguely, and then, trying to make his voice more tender, trying to conciliate something. Good night, dear children. Five. Charlie went directly to the Ritz bar with the furious idea of finding Lorraine and Duncan, but they were not there, and he realized that in any case, there was nothing he could do. He had not touched his drink at the Peters, and now he ordered a whiskey and soda. Paul came over to say hello. It's a great change, he said sadly. We do about half the business we did. So many fellows I hear about back in the States lost everything. Maybe not in the first crash, but then in the second. Your friend George Hart lost every cent I, cent I hear. Are you back in the States? No, I'm in business in Prague. I heard that you lost a lot in the crash. I did, and he added grimly. But I lost everything I wanted in the boom. Selling short? Something like that. Again, the memory of those days swept over him like a nightmare. The people they had met traveling, then people who couldn't add a row of figures or speak a coherent sentence. The little man Helen had consented to dance with at the ship's party, who had insulted her ten feet from the table. The women and girls carried screaming with drink or drugs out of public places. The men who locked their wives out in the snow, because the snow of twenty-nine wasn't real snow. If you didn't want it to be snow, you just paid some money. He went to the phone and called the Peters' apartment. Lincoln answered, I called up because this thing is on my mind. Has Marion said anything definite? Marion's sick, Lincoln answered shortly. I know this thing isn't altogether your fault, but I can't have her go to pieces about it. I'm afraid we'll have to let it slide for six months. I can't take the chance of working her up to this state again. I see. I'm sorry, Charlie. He went back to his table. His whiskey glass was empty, but he shook his head when Alex looked at it questioningly. There wasn't much he could do now except send Honoria some things. He would send her a lot of things tomorrow. He thought rather angrily that this was just money. He had given so many people money. No, no more, he said to another waiter. What do I owe you? He would come back some day. They couldn't make him pay forever. But he wanted his child, and nothing was much good now beside that fact. He wasn't young anymore, with a lot of nice thoughts and dreams to have by himself. He was absolutely sure Helen wouldn't have wanted him to be so alone.
Okay, we're back. Mike, I gave you a choice of Bernice Bob's Her Hair, The Offshore Pirate, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, and this one, Babylon Revisited. Was it a tough choice for you? It really was. I was torn between Diamond and uh, this one. And, um, you know, I love The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, and I I always feel like it's the perfect uh, repost to people who say I'm sick of F. Scott and his romanticism, and then... You know, when I give them Diamond, they 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 come back to me and say like, "Oh, I'm, I want to read more of his stuff." Mm. That it's not so, all. Uh, and and Hemingway, I think, has some. He he needs to share some blame for this because Hemingway wrote some things that made it seem like Fitzgerald only wrote about the wealthy, and he yeah. even kind of misquoted him in a couple times. I think we talked about this in our episode on Hemingway versus Fitzgerald. So I. I won't go into it too much, but it does seem like Fitzgerald maybe doesn't get credit for uh, he he sometimes gets blamed for being a little too naive in his admiration for the wealthy. And this story is a good example of how complicated and how complex he's willing to make the characters. Yeah, I, I think the reason I went, I ultimately went with Babylon Revisited is because I just remember the first time I read it that I was just you know, it, it, so so bowled over by it. And then the second time I read it, I loved it even more. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it, I think it's, it's almost like a kind of a perfect short story and very teachable actually. Yeah. The structure is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you admire about it? Um, I, I, I love the, this, it's basically a critique of, drinking it's a critique of his his life mm-hmm. it's also like a paris that is unlike the paris in a lot of his other other works and probably unlike the 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 paris that people think of when they associate paris with him mm-hmm. that you know, this they, is the paris after the party yeah i mean and and his take like just on the first page you know the way he says he was not really disappointed to find Paris so was so empty. Yeah, I mean it's it's just a different. It's a sad Paris that I I find that the story has all these little corners and attics yeah. that each time you read it, you start noticing things and yeah. I, I, mean, I underlined the line, a couple lines after that, where it says, it was not an American bar anymore. He felt polite in it and not as if he owned it. And I wrote in the margin, did Hemingway ever feel as self-honest as this? That you're not just this stomping through Europe, acquiring things and making everything your own, but that there are times when it sort of rejects you and that you're just a visitor and that's... That's how it is. You're just a you're a foreigner. Yeah, I mean it's um, you know, just the the character himself coming back to the scene of the crime, revisiting yeah. the crime. I mean, I think at, for a reader as a reader ages, I you know, the story ages really well because the number of stations in life that are covered by characters is so fascinating as the reader ages. So, um, the first time I read it, I really didn't think the story was about child custody. Mm. <laughs> I, I wasn't a parent. Right. I mean, I thought the, <laughs> the story was about his ego 
taking, finally learning to take a back seat going up against Marion. Yeah. And then the second time I read it, it seemed that it was really about the choices you make once you become a parent and whether, you know, Mm. you go from one extreme like drinking and vomiting and riding tricycles in the middle of the night or raising 2.5 kids in the suburbs, you know, working a day job in the office and then coming home and not feeling very, very close to your spouse, but having built this life together. Yeah. And you know that he goes into it and he's, he's on the mend now, he's on the rise, he's feeling good about himself, and yet he thinks he knew he would have to take a beating when he was going to go in and, and ask Marion for his daughter, and, and that basically he would just have to listen, and he, he even kind of tells himself going into it, the goal here is not to be justified, the goal here is to get your daughter, and he knows he's just going to have to kind of grit his teeth. I mean, Charlie, the way he is setting himself up for these things, you know, I just love how he's hes not just a repentant sinner. There's mm-hmm. part of him who got the, he's got that really funny thing he has with the drinks, where he's convinced mm-hmm. himself it's better to take one drink a day, and then it doesn't loom too large in your imagination than if you tried to quit altogether. But he's right. so... Uh, it's such a big deal for him whether he's had that drink or not. And at one point he says, sometimes I forget to take it, but I try to take it. You know, like, he's, <laughs> it's such a scheme, it's such a plan, it almost seems, you almost doubt whether it's real or whether it's just an alcoholic who's convinced himself of some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of crazy scheme that's going to backfire. But he's got such plans like this. And and one of the things I love about him is that even though he really sort of hates his past and he hates the the actions that he did and he kind of can't believe it and he's kind of almost disgusted by some of the stories he hears and, of course, the visitors, we can talk about them too. But at the same time, I sensed in him this feeling that uh, Marion and uh, uh, Lincoln... Mm-hmm. that he didn't necessarily think that they were going about life the right way either, that they were living this sort of cramped lifestyle and they had made choices that had maybe limited themselves too much and that, you know, maybe it's better to uh, ride the roller coaster up as well as down. And if the times are are going up, then, you know, maybe you need to be a little bit open to it at least. And so you you can profit from it and you can experience life as it's going up. And it, it's, you know, he's there was one point, it's right at the sort of peak of his happiness or his, his perspective happiness. And he thinks, you know, maybe I can help Duncan get out of that rut he's in at the bank. You know, it's not, um, yeah. it, it is like this, feeling like he doesn't necessarily want to go back to the past, but at the same time, he doesn't want the past to be, you know, it's not totally black and white, that the past wasn't just all bad. There was something good about it, too. Yeah, so I, I mentioned the stations in life, and then on the other, you know, you, you you contrast that with just a personality type and whether 
the the you know a person isn't behaving that way because they're old a person's behaving that way because they've always behaved that way and i think that's one of the fascinating things about the story is that you feel like marion is you know an old person and has always behaved like an old person yeah you know whereas lorraine has always behaved like a juvenile yeah. And sometimes it's more fun to hang out with a juvenile. Yeah. And he himself had been like that just a couple of years before. And you kind of don't blame the people. I mean, on the one hand, you think it's totally unfair as you're reading it. There's a way to read this all the way through and think it's totally unfair that these people won't let Charlie change. And on the other hand, you think, well, Maybe they're accepting that he's trying to change, but it's also totally fair for Marion to think, well, he's he could be, you know, one night away from going back to being that same person he was a year and a half ago. And it's it's also fair for Lorraine and Duncan to sort of say, well, why are you so uh, not fun now when it wasn't that long ago when you were the life of the party and you would have been with us in you know, scorning all of these people leaving these dull apartment lives. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the the, the great thing, the great one of the great things about this story, the way you get this pit in your stomach when Lorraine shows up mm. that second time. The first time, you, you can, you, you know, you're worried, but the second time, you just feel like this can't go well. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 really such a great move that Fitzgerald makes to bring bring those two back because yeah. they're kind of they're kind of one dimensional. Like when they show up, you just know that they're they're just drunks, and you can't imagine how they could be fun. But then when the second time they show up, I think there's a line where Charlie goes, "I remember when my wife was upset because Lorraine is attractive," and there's this moment yeah. where you get this glimpse of why Lorraine would be fun to be around. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's it's that second time, and I think this story has a couple of moments like that where there's a first time something happens, and then the second time is, is you know, just such a surprise the way it's done. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, it, I mean, it, like you were saying, it's it's so well constructed. I mean, it's like a, it's like a blueprint. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't... You don't have to be somebody who lived through Paris in the 20s to get it. It's something that anyone with a past can understand. Yeah. It's like you see this, and sometimes it's these are sort of uh, a different type of example, but you see this with high school friends, or it's strange how on Facebook, for example, you'll be talking to someone and they'll bring up something like... Uh, oh, yeah, well, I remember you love Mountain Dew, you know, or something like that. And it's it's from 25 or 30 years ago. And people, you lock people into these boxes from the time when you knew them. Or you'll say, well, of course, you're a huge Star Wars fan or something like that. And then the the person on the other end thinks, boy, I haven't really cared about Star Wars for a couple decades now. I've moved on. I've gotten a job i've got a wife and kids and you know and and it locks people it draws people back into this past 
And I, I mean, an extreme example, I have this thing with my mom where mm-hmm. she'll ask everyone at the table, you know, do you want orange juice or apple juice? And then she'll pour it out for them. And with me, she'll just pour out apple juice. And I'll mm-hmm. say, oh, I actually would, would prefer some orange juice this morning. And she'll say, oh, you don't like orange juice. You've always liked apple juice. And she's talking, literally, she's talking about when I was a baby. That I, when I was like one years yeah. old, and it's just hard for people to put that out of their mind, especially when they don't see someone for a while. Yeah, I mean the 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 maneuvering against Marion and trying to gauge Marion by reading Lincoln, it it really is like a little chess game. I I, I love I love those scenes mm. with the, the triangulation of the three. I do too. And when he thinks he he thought now, he was sure now that Lincoln wanted him to have his daughter. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I mean, that is, and there 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 are a handful of moments like that where you get this character, this really brilliant brilliant character insight uh, insights, you know. Yep. Um, and like for example, when she says, she'll say, you know, you have to understand, this was my sister. And he'll yeah. say he never really knew how intimate she was with her sister in life. He didn't really know if uh, she liked her sister or not. You know, yeah. I mean, my guess is she was probably very disapproving of Helen during life, you know, as Helen was was partying and everything. And it's and then it, it, there's another point where she says something like or where the narrator says uh, this was one she she took one act and viewed it as a whole series of what she imagined her sister's martyrdom was. Yeah. And <laughs> what a line. Yeah. Yeah. And but the other thing about it, and this is what I love so much about Fitzgerald, I think Hemingway would have done that differently. I think, for example, when uh, he's talking about Marion and he's saying he was never sure, you know, he, Charlie, was never sure how much she liked her sister in life. I think Hemingway would have just had that as she never liked her in life. Mm-hmm. It would have been definitive and it would have been this statement and it would have been accusatory and it would have basically showed that she was a hypocrite and she was getting in Hemingway's way. And with Fitzgerald, it's he was never certain. And so you wonder if maybe he was mistaken and he's sort of more vulnerable that way, that, that he maybe missed some clues. Maybe he didn't see the intimacy during life, that it was, maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. But it's, he's willing to acknowledge that there was some ambiguity there and that maybe she was at fault, but maybe he was at fault. Yeah, I mean, she, Marion's instability is a very, very hard card to play. And Fitzgerald, does it perfectly i mean you know the way she accuses him of um causing helen's death and you get that scene where lincoln goes hold on there you know i never thought you were responsible for that yeah yeah you know and then (laughs) i mean marianne hides behind her instability you know she Mm -hmm. she just she just throws it up whenever it's convenient you know yeah and one time he he says, you know, <laughs> he uses the word damn, and she says, 
please don't swear at me just to like cut him off and yeah. take kind of the moral high ground. And then her husband is like, since when have you ever cared about the word damn, you know, <laughs> <It> <laughs> sort of undermines her. But then in the end, she does kind of get her way after the, after the two old friends arrive. And then Lincoln just says, look, she's had a shock and I, she's really sick. This, this kind of thing is really hard for her. I just, I can't explain anything to her now. And you're just going to have to understand, Charlie, this is, you know, you blew it basically. Yeah. I wonder if anybody out there has any sympathy for Marianne at that moment, because it is clearly meant to be a moment of injustice. I think there Fitzgerald, you know, really pushes that. I mean, I, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to throttle Marianne at that moment. So, <laughs> just personally. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. What are they arguing about? Because at that point, it's not about Honoria, right? Yeah. It's really about Helen. Yeah. And it's about Marianne, who's got her own conception of what Helen would have wanted. And Marion is kind of trying to mold Helen into her image of, well, you know, Helen probably wanted a very responsible, you know, the most, the safest and most responsible atmosphere for Honoria, because that's what I can provide. But, but also, you know, and then the very last line of the story mm -hmm. is where Fitzgerald kind of brings that all home, where... <laughs> Charlie basically says uh, he's quite certain that Helen would have wanted it. <laughs> you know, Helen would have wanted him to be happy and to have his child. It's just mm. awful. It's awful. But he's and he he's probably right. I mean, maybe. <laughs> but it's it's just there's no one to really be angry at here. Everybody, uh, everybody's oh. kind of oh, you're angry at uh. I'm a, I'm pretty angry at Marianne, and I think <laughs> I, I think Lincoln's a little spineless. So that's my, and I'm 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 mad at Lorraine too. I, I on my on my in the margins I wrote that Lorraine and her friend are Satan's spawn, <laughs> right? For showing up like that. I think one of the questions I put to you was, could this be a ghost story? And you could almost imagine it. I mean, they arrive. Those two arrive like ghosts. They're like ghosts out of his past. Yeah. And Helen is in there like a ghost, too. At one point, she's she's talking to him, but she's on a swing, so he can't really tell what she's saying. Yeah, I love that. I love that scene. It's so it's this the dream sequence, this, yeah. this spiritual moment yeah. where, yeah, I mean, that's talk about a shift in language and in this in the narrative just to have that you know have that scene i mean that you know he does that from time to time in this fiction like very strange sequences that just don't res get resolved little flights they're just they're little uh moments of beauty or just this sort of lyrical flights i guess he had a very poetic spirit so do you think uh let me defend marion i guess for a little mm -hmm. bit you know, here's this guy, when mm -hmm. he was on these benders, riding a tricycle around Paris, his daughter mm -hmm. was six. Yeah. You know, maybe seven. So, you, you know, where was he then? And 
it it's kind of like uh you know now he's bragging about how much money he's making in Prague and you do yeah. just kind of think at what point does he think boy it's a lot more fun to live the way that I was living in Paris and you know he didn't care so much about his 6-year-old daughter and where you know where was his daughter when he was pushing his tricycle around Paris and and going on these benders and so I kind of feel like, and I think Charlie recognizes this, that to some extent he's kind of forfeited his his moral high ground here. And again, the, the backstory, the way b- bits of backstory come through in this story, it, it, it is so well handled. I mean, they, you, you find out that he legal he signed a legal document handing over guardianship. Yep. yep. Um, probably midway through. You don't get that in the beginning because if you got that in the beginning, he would start with a black mark on his soul. But right. instead, you get the the scenes with him and his daughter, and then you find out that he signed away. I mean, what kind of parent signs away guardianship? That And that, and that there's such a richness to the story, the way the backstory comes through. I mean, his wealth comes through later. Yep. You know, the domestic incident with locking out his Helen comes through later. Yep. It's just it's it's exactly when you feel like, OK, I know this guy. I'm sympathetic that you get these little moments. Yeah. You know? But then just when you think, oh, my God, well, he signed his daughter away and he sounds like he he almost killed his wife with his negligence. But then yeah. you hear kind of the the fuller side of the picture and you you hear him say that when he signed it over it was because he thought if I could give Helen even a moment's peace I should do yeah. it. Yeah. He was doing it for the child's mother. And then mm-hmm. you know the the part where he's locked her out you hear that she's said something horrible to him. And he turned the lock in the apartment. He didn't realize that she was going to walk around in a snowstorm and slippers and be too confused to get in a cab. And, you know, all of the like she's got some responsibility for it, too. And then she didn't actually die of that. It was something that happened later. But you can see where where Marion would blame him for it. But on the other hand, you can also kind of see that this was sort of the world that both. Helen and uh, and Charlie were both inhabiting together. Yeah, I mean, the, st- the, the story is about giving people second or third chances. And it, I think the second time I read it, I started to notice that the, the type of person that gives people many, many chances are children. Mm. It took the second time that I read it that I really felt like I understood the story and it was his daughter and the dialogue with his daughter to me that makes the story just incredible. I mean, there, there are these two parallel scenes where she's alone with the dad and she says, first she says, um, why don't I live with you? She asked suddenly because mama's dead. Yeah. And then she, the parallel, like I was saying, the you know the the, the second time he does it, um, she turns to him and says, "Daddy, I want to come and live with you." She said suddenly. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's such a 
the daughter is the one who, and like children, they 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 kind of don't know better, and they they're just kind of going with whatever feels right, you know, despite the past. Mm. Yeah. Oh, such a good story. Okay, can you pick one word to define the story? I I chose duty. Duty. That doesn't. I said, I said, doesn't love even become a kind of duty? Oh, interesting. I had melancholy. I crossed it out. I put twilight. Crossed it out. I put hangover. Crossed it out. And then I put guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some combination of those. <laughs> um, okay. Here's a little quiz. Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Please finish this sentence for Fitzgerald. The past is never dead. It's blank. I, I wanted to do something monetary. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what? To me, the past is cowardice. Mm. The past is never dead. It's cowardice. Yeah. It's 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 something you 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 know, it's 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 a font of self pity. It's it's excuse making. It's, yeah, it, it's 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 what people use when they're petty. <laughs> I wonder if that's why one of the reasons why Fitzgerald appeals so much to young people, and and maybe why it appealed to me when I was young. He's got this sense of you're writing your own narrative. That you're as you're living your life, you're also constructing the narrative of your life, and that at some point you're going to look back and you're going to, you know, you're going to you're going to try to shape certain events and fit them into the narrative of your life. And sometimes there'll be regrets for the way things went. And when you look at other people, you're going to be looking at them as stories, and they'll have pasts that they're mm -hmm. trying to escape or they're or they're comfortable living with, but. It's all kind of, everyone's kind of marching forward, but they're all sort of like characters in this giant novel. Okay, one more question. Sometimes people define the world as full of givers and takers. Is Charlie a giver or a taker? I, I said that Charlie was definitely a taker and that Fitzgerald <laughs> was a taker too. And, 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 Fitz, and Wait, Fitzgerald is a taker in life or in, as, a, as the author? in life and that most writers are takers and that, you know, you look like someone, look at someone like Alice Monroe and people think of her as this like innocent, solid yeah. citizen. And, yep. but she, she's taken her chances with love and made decisive decisions because she always puts herself first. So <laughs> that's my take on writers. I, I don't, I don't find Charlie very convincing as, mm in terms of redemption do you um, think he's deceiving himself i think I, I i think he has no idea of what it means to be a good parent mm. and yeah. all he wants to do is he wants to just try it try it out to get a shot at it right you know and i think that the, the tragedy of the 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 story for me is that his daughter really believes in him and isn't that worth isn't that worth the effort yeah. The attempt. Right. Like no one else in the story believes. I mean, Lincoln sort of believes in him, but nobody else in the story believes in him. And Lincoln, the way he believes him is kind of like, well, we can't really stand in your way, can we? Yeah. Yeah. You're uh, your blood. Yeah. And, but yeah, he'll say things like, 
I'm going to miss her childhood. Don't you see that? <laughs> you know, at, at one point he kind of says she's got all of her own customs and all of her own language or, you know, yeah. the, the, her expressions. And then he just thinks, I'll never really get that from letters or from spending just a bit of time with her. I, I won't know unless I'm really with her. Yeah. But yeah, even yeah. when he asks them, he says, I want to I want to fashion a home for myself. I, I think you're right. It is kind of uh, I think he loves her and I think he, he genuinely misses her. He, he wants to be with her. But I think you're right. He's sort of selfishly thinking of himself as a parent rather than her needs as a child. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, he, his big thing is like, oh, let me get her some gifts. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's, and, and he has these, and, you know, he has these rationalizations too. I mean, this rationalization, you can read it, you know, some of the most tender reflections can be rationalizations. She, he says, it was, it was hopeless to know her in such a short time. And, you know, you read that as, Oh, that's that's sad. But you also read that as that's a cop out. I mean, that's that's why parents think, oh, my kid doesn't really need me right now. Yeah, and it's like, well, you know, that's giving up. You know? Yeah, and he's kind of manipulative sometimes. Like he's he's when he's got that having that conversation with her, and he's he's trying to have this kind of funny dialogue where he's. Mm -hmm pretending to be somebody official and they're introducing themselves to one another. And he says, uh, are you married? <laughs> and you know, yeah. she's got that doll and she's like, so she immediately, she doesn't want to give up the doll as her child. So she says, <laughs> uh, I was, but the husband died and he just moves quickly to the next. <laughs> like, yeah. He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't recognize that she probably has a lot of grief that he could yeah. help her deal with but instead he just he's trying to make sure that she's having a good time so she'll want to go with him and then there's another part where he's kind of does a similar thing where he oh it's where he works in you know that she likes her cousins and then he says and what about marion and lincoln which of those do you like the best he's trying to casually ask but you know what he really wants to hear is that <laughs> She doesn't like Marion, you know, right. that, that she can be pried away from Marion. And it's it it felt a little selfish and a little manipulative to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and it, it, I mean, that 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 really shows, you know, a guy who's capable of signing away uh, guardianship and just drinking himself to death and spending money, wasting money, furthering money away, you know, that, that the our criticisms of him as a parent that's consistent with a person like that so the story would be far worse if he was you know a, there was real redemption right so that's why i you know i love the ending i and i it reminds me of um it, it's almost the story to me is like almost like a prequel to tender is the night mm. his, his novel ah Okay, well, anything else we should mention that we haven't touched on yet? Just how flawed everybody is. And yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, a, but aesthetically, I think uh, the story is just incredible. He aims very high with this story. I, yeah. I, I think some of his stories, they're, they're, it's a smaller palette, like Bernice Bob's her hair or mm -hmm. the cut glass bowl. And here, 
he's just trying to cover everything. Some really deep emotions here. And he's, he's so vulnerable. He's so willing to be vulnerable. And he, he does, he doesn't make this just a morality play where there's, it's all black and white. Everything is a little bit complicated, but everything about it is, uh, I feel like Hemingway would have always put up this shell. And sometimes he lets you take a peek inside the shell and you see the vulnerability underneath. But Fitzgerald, it's like, there's no shell. It's all out in the open. It's all, the emotion is so raw and so exposed. And you see kind of through Charlie. I mean, you you see through him. Yeah. Oh, okay. So good. Okay. Great choice. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for introducing me to Fitzgerald all those years ago and for joining me for this scintillating conversation. We'll be back soon with more history of literature goodness. We're getting into the holiday months now, which means some great theme-based episodes. I'll try to have a good one on families and holidays. Last year, we had the dead, of course. That will be hard to beat. But we will try. You can help support the show at historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy me a virtual coffee or maybe a shot of Robitussin. (laughs) They're not a sponsor. Maybe they should be. (laughs) Or in honor of Fitzgerald, maybe a gin martini. Or you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature. As always, your generosity is very much appreciated. This little show could not survive without it. So thank you very much from the bottom of our heart. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.